Welcome to the very first episode of the High School Coaches Club podcast. I'm your host, Max Price. In today's episode, I am joined by retired head coach, Chris Lee. Chris was the head coach at North Salem High School from 1999 to 2019 before retiring. During his time there, he coached a number of talented players, uh, many of whom were drafted by professional baseball organizations, and two of whom who made it to the major leagues and continue to play professionally today. In this discussion, I think you'll find some things really useful that you can put into play immediately with your teams and your players. In addition, we discuss Coach's journey from his time as a young coach with a family all the way up until his retirement in 2019. It's a great discussion. It's a fun discussion. There's a lot to gain from it. And for me, it was really special. Uh, Coach Lee was my high school head coach. I met him back in 2003, and he's been an extremely influential person in my life. He's been there in all the ups and downs for me, and I'm just so honored to have him here as the very first guest. And uh, in retrospect, I look back at how many times I was trying to convince everybody I knew what I was doing. He would say, me, get them fired up. Come on, get us some energy. And it was my job to be the you know, vocal inspiration for our team. If you're ever present and you're always where your feet are, you're gonna be good. All right, so welcome to the first episode of the High School Coaches Club. Um, on for the very first episode is my high school head coach and uh, one of the first coaches that I worked for and somebody I've known over half my life. So welcome to the podcast, Chris Lee. Thank you very much. And I, I would like to say uh, my heart goes out to all the fire people impacted by fire and our first responders and our Outland wildfire fighters. Holy cow, what a monumental task ahead of them and and that our community has been through. Um, I just, my heart goes out to them. It's, uh, and just the impact of lives and, and families is incredible. So uh, my heart goes out to them. Um, so I met you in 2002, 2003, somewhere in there um, at North Salem High School, which would have been, um, you know, not, not too deep into your time there. Can you kind of run us through your coaching history, where you started, where you spent most of your time, and then when you kind of stepped away? Uh, I started coaching uh, my sophomore year, or my, excuse me, my junior year of college. I went to a junior college right out of high school, played for two years, and uh, we were the first year we went to the Junior College World Series. I was a backup role player. The second year, the uh, Northwest, it, that was the first year of stepping out of the JUCO. So we weren't eligible to go to the World Series anymore. We weren't good enough to that year either. But uh, we, uh, I, I played that year. And then my third year, I just I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of at a crossroads of life. And I stayed and helped my college coach coach the team that I had played on at Umpqua Community College in Winchester, Oregon wasn't really too hard and stuff. I was working in a plywood mill and taking credits that I could. Um, so then I, uh, I went to Western Oregon and played for another year after sitting out a year and that had its challenges. And then, uh, my, uh, I got married in the summer of 1985 to my wonderful wife, Terry Swearingen Lee. 
and uh, didn't didn't coach for a while. Uh, I stopped playing baseball because uh, we be- my wife became pregnant, and we I started working in the plywood mill to support our family and finish off school. So I didn't coach from 1984. Uh, 1983 was when I coached at Umpqua Community College. Until 1989, when I was doing my student teaching, I coached baseball at South Salem High School, year high school. Which is the and same year I was born. And I started coaching then. Is that right? <laughs> That's there, right. There's some, some coincidences going on. There are. Uh, and so I started coaching. I was an assistant volunteer for Terry Haugen at uh, South Salem High School. And the next year, I got hired late in the summer at Hermiston High School. And I coached five years of baseball and, and football at Hermiston High School. And then uh, I got hired to be a uh, an assistant coach and teacher at North Salem High School in the summer of 95. And then uh, coached five years of JV baseball in at North Salem before I got the opportunity to be the head coach. And I got the head coach head coaching job in the uh, fall of 99. So for the 2000 school year was my first year as a varsity coach. And I coached uh, through uh, 20 years. Everyone kept thinking I was going to, you know, step down from coaching at numerous times, and I didn't. And finally, in the uh, summer of, or in the spring of 19, uh, 2019, uh, I just had some issues with my, my parents were getting older and needed some uh, more attention and care. And I stepped away from coaching to uh, take care of family matters with my parents. So you retired in 2019 um, and started in 99. Um, can you kind of talk about, um, I mean, I went to high school at North Salem, so I, I know pretty good. Can you kind of talk about the demographics at North Salem um, and what, what kind of coaching in that environment's like? Yeah, we've evolved over time. Uh, we're an inner city school. We're not locked. We don't have a boundary lock. Some of our boundary extends out into the countryside up to the, uh, up in the McClay area. We've evolved over time. We're an inner city school. We're the oldest uh, North Salem started uh, uh, as an official high school in 1905 was their first class was their uh, 1906 was their first graduating class. It's a tremendous story. In 1904, the uh, North Salem actually beat the U of O and the Willamette University in their first baseball season. And uh, they, the next year, they beat the Oregon State Beavers in Oregon State's first baseball game. So it's kind of a, a hallowed story, and we've always been a baseball school. But uh, our demographics have changed, and uh, we've evolved to where we are a minority majority. We're 60% Latino. Our other ethnic groups between the island population and blacks and, and other minority groups make us a 70% um, minority school. And, uh, we are also at about 80, depending on the year, we're somewhere around 80% free or reduced lunch. Um, you started as a head coach in 99. Um, my first year with you would have been, uh, I don't know, 17 years ago, 2003 to 2007. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I remember what you were like then and, and where you are now. Can you kind of talk about as a, as a coach, how, you kind of evolved or changed over time from your kind of earlier days as a coach to where you kind of left things off in 2019? 
Yeah, when I first started coaching, uh, part part of my job as a coach, in retrospect, I look back, I wanted everybody to know I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and I think the having having conviction behind what you do is one of the strengths that every coach needs to have. But I I would yell out, talk out. I wasn't yelling just to yell, but I would yell to my players the correct thing that they should have done that, you know, we may or may not have practiced in practice, but I, I would convey to the player vocally where everyone could hear it. And uh, in retrospect, I look back at how many times I was trying to convince everybody I knew what I was doing. In my later years, I don't know when it's, I started the metamorphosis or uh, whatnot, but I most of the time, uh, especially from 2000, you know, even as I became a head coach, because I, I, I was an assistant coach and a JV coach five years at Hermiston and five years at North Salem, I had started to change by then. And I would wait until players came off the field to go over instruction with them as much as I could. And I, I believe that helped a lot. I also, even just at practice, I used to make a comment on every rep, everything we did. And I thought that that was providing, you know, because if you allow something to happen and it's the wrong thing, you're letting the wrong thing happen. But I found out that uh, fewer words carried more impact, which is hard for me because I'm a talkative person. <laughs> you are a talkative person. When I was a little kid, my, my first coach for baseball was my father. And my dad made me, you know, he used to, he called me meat. He called all his players meat, which I carried on. And he said, he would say, meat, get them fired up. Come on, get us some energy. And it was my job to be the, you know, vocal inspiration for our team. And it just carried through to when I was an, uh, an adult in coaching as well. Yeah, I remember um, I, I, it was probably my freshman year. It was, a, it was a day when we had a game, but the varsity team didn't. And so you ended up uh, hanging out in the dugout. Um, and I, I don't even remember what what I did or what the play. I mean, I was I was hitting. Who knows what happened? I probably struck out or something and then came to the dugout. Uh, and I, I still have no idea what you said, but I remember the feeling of, of, of not being yelled at on the field and coming into the dugout and having someone kind of put their arm around you and have a conversation where you, you, you find out a better way or whatnot, but you're not getting called out in front of people. And I remember the feeling of that as something I've tried to kind of put forward in my own coaching too. Well, and, and you, uh, if a, sometimes it, it does take that where you need to step out and say something, you know, maybe not publicly or whatever, but, you know, uh, more of a public audience than just a private, you know, arm around someone in the dugout. But you better make sure you have a relationship with that player and you know how they're going to respond. And uh, or you have a relationship with that player and, it, you know, you're not quite sure how they're going to respond, but you have a good relationship with that player. Because if you don't, you can really do damage to the coaching player relationship if you uh, you know, get on them publicly. Well, yeah, that's something that I know you've talked about before is the, the idea, you know, a lot of coaches have an idea of you, you, you know, everybody should be treated, uh, the same or equally or something kind of along those lines. And can you kind of dive into the idea of actually not treating everyone the same, especially your players? It's one of those paradoxes in life that I came to later in coaching 
And, uh, you know, I gave a lot of my coaching literature to you uh, when I retired. And uh, one of the books uh, was fabulous, was a baseball coaching Bible. Yes. And uh, they had a coach write a chapter on each one, you know, 10 different coaches write a chapter on their strength. I don't even know who it is, uh, but I can't remember. But he said, you know, players are like marshmallows, marbles, and rocks. And you, if you yell at them, if you put heat to a marshmallow, it's going to melt. If you put heat to a rock, it doesn't change. It stays the same. And if you put heat to a marble, it shines brighter. And he used that analogy to uh, use with players and that how – you need to treat everybody the same while you're, you're treating them differently. And that's one of the paradoxes of coaching that helped me immensely. Um, you you, you want to be fair with everybody, but fair for two different people. Fair is different for two different people. And you want to be fair in the application of rules and stuff. But some some kids, some players respond well to having the heat put to them a little bit and others just melt. And so you better adapt your, you know, and that's where that relationship part comes from. You have to know the relationship that you have, you know, with kids so that you know how you handle, you know, how they handle, you know, constructive criticism, coaching, uh, getting to whatever it may be that you're using for motivation with them. You need to know how they're going to respond and, and try to utilize what's best for that individual, not one size fits all. Well, so I think there's a, a push right now in education. It's, it's creeping into coaching too, which is that um, you're not supposed to be sarcastic um, with players or, or, or uh, I guess, teens in general when you're in a kind of a position of authority over them. But um, I think something that the people who are um, kind of making that unwritten rule a thing is, is they're not understanding the personal relationship that you build with people. I, I mean, I have kids on my team who – I can, we have a built relationship kind of built around comedy and sarcasm and I could be as sarcastic as ever to get a point across and they'll, they'll laugh and we we're golden and, and it gets the point across. And, you know, there's other kids that if I was, if I even thought of saying something like that, I already know that it would destroy the relationship. And so I think that individualizing thing is, is really important and understanding the difference is in kind of your relationships with each player. Oh, very much. And, and sometimes when I was younger, I, I didn't think that you had to, push kids to the edge of the cliff and, you know, just be a redliner and, and, you know, an extreme motivator, but you, you do, you know, uh, athletics and, and uh, physical performance and just being around people in general, you know, our job is to motivate them and make them better. And so sometimes you may go across the line and that's, yeah. that's another part of leadership. And that's where, when you do go across the line and that's where you having that relationship and seeing if you hurt someone, or, you know, might have, they, they took it the wrong way or whatever, you, you better come back to them. And that, that's the actually the best time to be public with them is, hey, uh, yesterday I messed up with, with uh, Fernando. And I, I told Fernando that, you know, said this out and, you know, I, I heard his feelings and I was wrong in the way I approached that. And I think that, you know, uh, leadership is having strength and courage and, and being able to motivate, but leadership is also being, um, I don't know, compassionate and and showing them that, you know, you're going to make a mistake too. 
I think that's huge for people is if you can, I've kind of seen that experience myself with uh, like different principles or, or even teams I've been on when it, when they can be in their position of authority and, and come up and apologize in front of a group for something where they may have crossed the line in earnest where they're, you know, they did it, they did it in trying to bring the best out in somebody, but when they can apologize in front of everybody else, that's it. I think it's a huge deal in, in respecting somebody and wanting to follow them. Very much. Um, okay, so you've you've been at North Salem, where you I mean you still teach there, but you, you t- you're the head coach there for 20 years. Um, I don't know how many guys ended up getting drafted, um, but there's quite a few. Um, two of whom, uh, Rocky Gale and Jed Lowry, played Major League Baseball, and then Jed Lowry uh, has continued to play. He's been in the majors for quite a long time, and then Rocky Gale has been kind of up and down between AAA and the majors for a while. What do you attribute that to? I mean, it's hard enough, you know, rare enough that one person from one high school in the country uh, plays at the highest level of their sport. How did two come out of North Salem during your time there? Yeah, and, uh, you know, especially in a northern atmosphere, in a northern climate where we don't get outside as much. (laughs) And uh, I think, you know, the two things, uh, you know, basketball coaches used to give me a bad time that, you know, all we did was work on skills and stuff in our indoor practices and, and off season workouts when it was pouring down rain and cold and snowy in the winter. And yet they would come in and just roll the ball out and, and scrimmage. And I'm like, man, you guys need to run some drills and, and have player led drills and, and get better at skills. And uh, no one ever did it. But uh, my whole thing was to try to work on fundamentals and uh, finding joy in work. And both Rocky and Jed both found joy in the daily work that was not just required to do, but that was fun to do. Uh, Rocky kind of summed it up. When he was a senior, we started baseball. Our first official baseball practice day was President's Day in uh, February. And so because of that, we had the tryout process and our, our numbers were higher back then we had we had to make cuts I would schedule uh, yeah I would schedule freshmen to practice at a different time than the sophomores through seniors and uh, Rocky called me the night before we started our official practice and he's like hey coach you know like freshmen were at noon and and upperclassmen were at four or five o'clock or three o'clock and Rocky's like, hey, can, hey, coach, can I come to the freshman practice tomorrow? And I'm like, Rocky, if you do that, you're going to be there from, you know, 1130 until we're done practicing at with upperclassmen at, at six o'clock. And he's like, coach, I'm going to be sitting home in my uniform waiting for practice. Can I just come to practice? <laughs> and I thought, wow, what a fabulous story of how much somebody loved an activity. And Rocky just wanted to be at the baseball field. So some of it is just that. I mean, you got to have that pure joy. And, you know, for a lot of my teaching and coaching career, I, you know, I haven't gone to work very often. I have got, you know, gotten to, I get to go to school and I get, got to go to baseball and baseball practice and baseball games. I don't don't know how many head coaches out there um, on the first day of practice with their teams every year puts on the full uniform. (laughs) Yeah, I care about it. I tried to do that uh, the whole, you know, as many times as we could, 
kind of got that from Pat Bailey at Oregon State. And he was like, yeah, someday I'm not going to put the uniform on anymore. I want to wear it as much as I can. And the other part, I just always tried to stress to player, you know, if, if I wore a baseball uniform to a basketball tryout, I'd stand out and look odd and funny because I'm not dressed appropriately. If I wear basketball clothes to a baseball tryout, I don't, I stand out and don't look very appropriate. <laughs> it's true. Um, Rocky and Jed also had, uh, multiple influences on their coaching career. Uh, they, you know, they would, uh, search out camps. Uh, Rocky's dad was a college baseball coach and a scout. And so he was around people with high baseball IQs and knowledge and, uh, and teachability. And they, they were both very coachable as well. I mean, you know, every player has their moment, but both Rocky and Jed were coachable, loved the game multiple avenues of, of instruction, applied that, and they, they did not mind going to work at all. I mean, they never thought baseball was a work or a grind. With really talented players, I know some coaches struggle sometimes with if somebody has kind of a reputation that precedes them and they show up at you know on your team for practice the first day of you know their high school career and they're they're obviously you know immensely talented. I know some coaches kind of sh- maybe get I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but they they shy away from maybe diving in and really coaching that person and getting after them. Guy has a scout as his dad or, you know, longtime coach is their parents or they're around really good coaching for a long time. They're really talented. Um, But I I mean, I know you've never not coached somebody who's in front of you. Well, I I just always thought my job was when they walked in the door, my job was to try to get them better. And it, it is challenging when, you know, you're, People come in with high IQ, baseball IQs, high skill sets, and that's actually should motivate you as a coach. Um, I always did professional development and, uh, you know, wanted to learn more. And I was so motivated to, you know, it wasn't just Jed and Rocky, Ryan Penn, Ryan Godfrey. I mean, Eric, Am- numerous Red players. I'm, it, leaving, yeah, leaving people out is a disservice. <laughs> Cole um, Hamilton, we could go for a long time. Yeah, but my whole thing was that I did not want to. Um, I didn't want to not coach him. I, I told you know I'm not going to get down and kiss your butt because you know hey Jed Lowry, thanks for playing for me. You know, uh, I, I my job was to make them better, and so I was motivated to find the uh, the nuance, the the major factor, what whatever it may be. I wanted to find something to make them a better player. And if I could, the, if the more things I could find, you know, obviously the better. And most of the time, if there was ever a, a rub where people were not coachable, I would use that. And be, because I, I've had skilled players that were very open to suggestion and, and wanted to get better. And they're, you know, they would be like, wow, okay, we've got, got a lot of work to do. And, uh, they, they would work at it to get better. And I, I appreciated that. Not, not every kid, but, and the, the ones that, uh, you know, I just said, you don't ever try to be the best kid at North Salem high school. I used to send letters to players and it's like, okay, we're going to have 15 players on our varsity team. Our team was limited by the vehicle we took to away games. We could carry 15, 14 players. So I'm like, okay, we've got 14 players on our varsity at North Salem. Are you going to try to be the best of those 14 players? And then we had six high schools in Salem. You know, there's 
around 90 varsity players in Salem. Are you going to try to be one of those best 90? There, there was, you know, 50 high schools are at our size in, in the state of Oregon. So there was over 600 varsity players at our level in the state of Oregon. Are you going to be trying to be one of those better than one of those guys or than all of them? And so I'll always try to strive to be better. And some people really bought into that. And, and when you have a high skill set kid, if you can use that to motivate them, don't, don't just be the best for here or for there. And, and, and I got, I stole that from someone. We went to a, we uh, t- won the Legion state title one year and we went to regionals and uh, the guest speaker asked, said, Hey, uh, how many people hit 350 here? And he asked him to stand up and we were in this big, uh, audit, not auditorium, but a outdoor audit, you know, outdoor uh, amphitheater. And a bunch of kids stood up and he's like, how many kids hit uh, 10 home runs? Stand up. And, you know, it was a handful of kids and he let, listed several skills of, you know, how many kids have done these. And he's like, you know what? There's 5,000 people, probably 10,000 people just like you in California. And I thought it was eye-opening. It's like, you know, okay, you, for where you you are, you did really well. But there's 10,000 people in Florida and California and in these more populated, you know, warm weather baseball states that did that just as well. And so, and it wasn't trying to belittle, you know, and I, I, that's the thing you need to work with players on. I'm not trying to belittle you. I'm trying to use, for you to use this with motivation. You know, the best players I had were always trying to be at the next level which is hard at high school because not every kid wants to go play at the next level. You know, they're, they're very, some of them are, some of them are, some of them are trying to be a college baseball player, but some of them are out there just the, they like baseball and some of them are out there because they're a good athlete and they've got friends on the team. Yeah. That's something I struggled with early on. When I got to South, I still kind of do this to a degree. My goal is, you know, I want to help every player, you know, get the skill set and obviously the motivation, desire, all that sort of thing to want to play college baseball. Um, but as the time's gone on and I've had opportunity to reflect, especially now, you know, we haven't played a baseball game since 2019. Um, uh, it, it's kind of dawned on me how many guys come into our program and they don't, they don't care about playing in college. They're, they're playing this sport because a couple of their buddies played it. They've played it since they were little and they just enjoy it. Um, that's kind of been an eye-opening thing for me recently is trying to figure out how to approach those kids and treat them in the way they deserve to be treated without belittling is not the right word, but, you know, treating them like they're going to play college baseball, even though they don't plan to or want to. Right. And just and my, my whole goal was to always provide the, the best baseball environment possible while I help boys become young men. And I, I think that was the, the thing that I worked at the most and when I, you know, I saw that that was your motto and, and when you came out and stuff and I'm like, Hey, that's good. And I just want, I wondered, you know, and you've had some high skill set players, uh, you yeah, know, we've been lucky. majority of your team, you know, and so those kind of years that, you know, you might, I don't know if you ever changed someone's mind that, Hey, I didn't think I was a college baseball player. Now I am, I guess you get a few of those, but a kid that's like, nah, I don't really want to play college. But not many. Yeah, I don't really want to play college baseball. They, you know, I'm out here for fun, and you know, you just gotta embrace that. And and uh, you know, there's a there's a place like that for everybody. When you when you were talking about 
earlier talking about kind of apologizing in front of a group for something. And then we were talking about Rocky Gale who played for you and ended up in the major leagues. It brought back a memory of Rocky, which would have been his senior year. I was a junior and uh, our pitching coach at the time was a guy named Ryan Godfrey who also played for you. Um, and I remember we were doing um, kind of a conditioning set. And at one point we were doing um, like diamond push-ups or something like that. And and Ryan was running that part of the practice. And um, Rocky, of all people who I've never heard <laughs> speak up in a negative way in practice, said something about, why are we doing this? This sucks or something like that. Um, and then I, I it was a really eye-opening moment for me because after practice at roundtable, um, which I guess you should probably explain, um, he spoke up in front of the whole group and apologized. And here's, you know, 17 or 18 year old kid apologizing to guys, his own age and his coach, uh, just Rocky, uh, apologizing in front of the team at round table, um, was a really impressive moment. Can you kind of talk about what round table is? I realize that, um, boys and men rarely give each other compliments. Um, and I don't know if it was from watching interactions with my wife and her friends, but, you know, it, it's never a problem for a, a woman to come in and see a friend of theirs and say, oh, wow, you look nice today. That That's a great hairdo. That's your, you know, your makeup, your ear, all what wonderful earrings, whatever compliment it may be. And, you, you know, there's not very many times a guy comes in and says, hey, wow, Joe, those those jeans look good on you. And, you know, they, they just not as open as giving compliments to each other. Or if they said that you'd, you'd be like, Oh, you're being sarcastic. Yeah. Or, or they'd get ridiculed for saying it and which is unfortunate. And, uh, I just, I wanted to start something where we were saying positive things to each other and also that we would communicate with each other because we weren't a team that would communicate a lot. So at the end of every practice or game, I started, I was a history teacher, Knights of the Round Table, all for one, one for all. We were going to stand around the, the home plate circle and we were going to give each, someone a compliment. And my rule was you two people in a row could pass, but if two people passed, the third person had to talk. And uh, so, I mean, and it, it has evolved over time. Uh, when I first started as a JV coach doing it, I, I, I'll never forget this one player I had named John Williams would not, I mean, he didn't say five words, you know, in a day kind of thing. He was a, you know, kept everything close to the vest and, he, you know, he would pass unless it got to him where the two people before him passed. So his buddies would get in front of him so he would have to talk because they would pass and force him to talk and he would say, you know, one or two things. And then that was it. And uh, but John played for me as a sophomore and then again as a junior. And his when he first started as a as a sophomore, his eyes would be down in the ground and he never made eye contact with anybody. And he he was one of our uh, better players, average to above average as a sophomore on the JV team. And we had a really good varsity squad. So some of the some of the better JV players got held down a second year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And John, uh, his second year, man, his eyes were up, making eye contact. He he would talk even if the players before him spoke. Uh, he was telling guy, calling guys out for not not uh, playing hard or you know something we we had done wrong or we needed to address. And it went roundtable went from trying to 
encourage people to give compliments to each other to it, it, people called each other out. Players called each other out. And uh, it was something that I had to learn to every once in a while. I had players that I had to dial it back. And sometimes I would use, I would do it in round table and say, okay, let's slow it down a little bit or, you know, find a way to diffuse it. But a lot of times it was on the side, Hey, you know, you're getting a little critical in round table, you know, find some, find some things to be positive about as well. You know, if, if you think that's what needed, that's fine, but make sure if it's ever corrected, you, you also give someone kudos for, for doing well. And uh, so it kind of got to the thing where we, at the end of every practice and game, we, we hashed it out after we were done putting the field away. And I think it was a strength. I think it encouraged everybody on our team to be a leader. And uh, we, we never had captains when I was at North Salem. And I, uh, I was criticized from, for that from other head coaches in our building and uh, sometimes athletic directors. And I just told them I, I didn't need two leaders or one leader or three leaders. I needed everyone to be a leader. And it, it, it took different shapes. The younger players weren't always, you know, uh, up front and a leader their first year or the first time of roundtable. But I mean, we did it at all levels of our program and kids were used to it. And, uh, you know, so when you're a younger player, you kind of wait f- to see where you're, you know, you can put your foot in the way and step in and be somebody. And sometimes players did that, but that was good. And then there's times that you know, I, I needed people that I still had a group I'd go to on the side and say, hey, I need you to, you know, go, go do this or do that and talk to another player and, th- you know, they or find out information about things. Hey, how are things going? And so I would do that on the side. But roundtable was for everybody. It's something that I've taken with me and it'll be part of any team I ever uh, coach. It's as a as a player, I uh, obviously played in the North Salem program and was part of round tables. And I think it, not to toot your horn or anything, but it played a huge role in kind of giving me confidence to speak up when I felt things weren't going the way they should go. Or if I did want to compliment somebody or something like that, it just, it knowing that that was coming at the end of practice or at the end of a game, I think made me pay more attention to what was going on during practice or a game, which in turn, um, basically made me say some of the things I would have waited to say at round table and actually say them during the game. You know, if you see somebody maybe doing something and they, they could find a better way to do it, uh, addressing it then during the game, during the time that it's happening or in the dugout afterwards, um, rather than waiting till round table even. And so I think not only does it build leadership of players through knowing that's coming, but also because you know, it's coming, you start addressing things when they're happening rather than waiting or waiting for yeah. a coach to address it. Right. And I, and I never, I mean, I wanted us to be self-directed that way. And I, I probably should have put some limitations in, in retrospect, looking back uh, sometimes, especially when we had years where we had more than a couple assistant coaches. Uh, we, we should have stayed in our lane a little bit on focusing on the area of our coaching. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, you know, coaches would be, I mean, if it was occasionally and you felt like, okay, I was really upset about today, or I have something really important that's not in my coaching area, then you could make a statement about it. But I, I think I, ne- I never told, no subject was uh, off limits. I'll never forget one time, but we had a summer team that I'm like, holy cow, we're coming around. We're really gelling toward the playoffs. 
we've, you know, we're going to qualify for state. We're going to go down and we're just, you know, man, we were trending in the right direction and we get to round table and one of our players had said something inappropriate about another, uh, about a teammate's younger sister. Mm-hmm. And but he wanted to fight. And I'm like, holy sugar. I, I had no idea. And I'm like, I mean, just blew the, blew the volcano, blew the lid yeah. off. And I mean, I, I literally thought they were going to fight. It was a good thing they were on opposite sides of the circle and it was tarped. Or I think he had ran across and uh, really gone after it. And uh, I mean, you find out things about that. And it was good that it got out because it allowed us to grow, even though it was a really bad situation. And uh, I mean, there's been good and bad, but I mean, I, I really, in my 20 years of being a head baseball coach uh, that I did that in 25, probably 25 that I did it as a coach, um, I, I probably, you know, told someone to mellow out or to, you know, hold down what they're saying less than 10 times. And we, we had some tumultuous, you know, situations like that. But a lot of times, especially if it was an effort thing, we never allowed any uh, any player to coach another player unless, you know, you know uh, teammates went to each other looking for that assistance. But we never, you know, we told them if a player wasn't uh, hustling or wasn't putting out effort, that was definitely something that another, a teammate could get on them about and uh, or or a bad attitude or you know, someone having a bat at bat coming back and blowing up and then that's fine. But then, you know, getting back into it, using your way to get back to the team instead of just staying in your individual selfishness. And uh, that those were things that we wanted players to to uh, bring their teammates around with. When you go back to like the early time, I mean, I know like as a coach, it's one of the coolest things is when you're um, – in whatever sport you're doing, but for baseball, when you're in the third base box and you're out on the field and you're coaching and, and something happens, a uh, player blows up or does something maybe they shouldn't have done and they go into the dugout and you see one of your other players addressing it with them in a calm and collected way, but productive. Um, it kind of goes to the to a culture that's been built over a long time and that happened in North for a long time. Um, and it's one of those things that I think once the culture is kind of set, it's pretty easy for other players to start buying into it when they get there. What do you attribute building that culture to early on in addition to round table? Um, I, I think round table is a lot of it. I think players felt that they had an ownership in our program that it wasn't just, you know, they they, they could help each other out those ways. And uh, older players, we uh, we had some real, like Ryan Godfrey was really good with younger players, including little league kids. Yeah, you were really good with younger players. Uh, I mean, just we've we've had a lot of Rocky, uh, just numerous players that came through that were really good with uh, even youth levels, you know, and doing our, our we did a baseball camp and we always had our players coach it. Um, and we'd wear and, we'd wear our uniforms and. I do remember those camps and how well organized they were and there was different stations and how much um, freedom you gave to us as players to become coaches. Yeah. I always wanted you, you know, if you, if you can teach something, then you know it better than if you're just trying to perform it yourself. And uh, I think that totally helped us, you know, from doing camps with youth players. We used to put on a tournament 
where we umpired the, you know, the older, older players umpired for the, the youth leagues. And I thought that was invaluable. I mean, we, we have, there's still storage boxes of umpires gear that we used for, you know, we'd put on tournaments for youth programs and, and uh, all those were a, a way of taking ownership in a way, just increasing the baseball knowledge of our players and their, their self-awareness of what was going on. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, clear back with Roundtable and Rocky apologizing to, to Coach Godfrey. And uh, I, I kind of, uh, I didn't purposely uh, increase the incendiary situation, but I certainly caused it. I uh, just, we, we had a really good practice and I kind of said, hey, Ryan, do some conditioning with these guys. I'm going to go start dragging the field. And which I hardly ever did during, I mean, no, it was just getting away. Ever. I mean, I did the, I drug the field and everything, but I just didn't but not do it until we practice. Yeah. yeah. Until we were done. And so Ryan was kind of uh, creating something on the fly. And about halfway through that, Rocky said, you know, you're just kind of winging this, aren't you? <laughs> and started challenge. And, and Ryan took it as a challenge. And Ryan was a young coach. He had just gotten done playing college baseball. He, was replacing his dad. And we, I mean, we had a, a very strong program at the time and I, I'm dragging the field and just thinking, wow, we had this wonderful, fantastic practice. <laughs> and Ryan just beelines it to me at the end of conditioning. And he's just going off about a senior challenging him and questioning his coaching methods. And, and I mean, he, he was very, very upset and wanted to leave practice. And I said, no, no. And I, you know, talked him away from doing that. And I said, J- you know, just, just wait, J- you know, just let, let's, you know, I, I don't even know if I said, you know, let's wait to see what happens or, but it certainly did happen. We, you know, we hadn't done round table yet. We put the field away. We got to round table and I, uh, it got, we went around the cor- we went around the circle and usually in the round table, there might've been a couple of, of older players that were in, I was always the last person to go. And I stood near the first baseline on the, on the infield side. And so the first couple people would be veterans, but then it was always like the youngest kids in the program that are on the team. And then it would slowly get older and older and older until the grizzled veterans right at the very yeah. end. If and uh, Rocky end. was, <laughs> Rocky was all the way to the end. And he's like, uh, Hey coach Godfrey, I want to apologize to you. He said, uh, I'm a leader on this team and I questioned you. And he's like, how dare I do that? How dare I? Uh, and he's like, I, I should have never questioned you. And it was one of the most powerful moments in our program. And uh, it built so much camaraderie and team. And uh, that, that team was really special to begin with. And uh, so much cared so much more about each other than they than they than themselves. I mean, the the attitude of servitude on that team was incredible. And part of it was like guys, you know, Rocky just said, "Hey, I'm sorry. I totally pooched this. I should have never done that. And I hope you can forgive me." And uh, Ryan forgave him, and we, you know, did our. We always said Vikes at the or family or something that one of the leaders wanted us to say at the end. And uh, we, we, the player started to walk away and I said, wow. And he's like that. And he, he, coach Godfrey said, wow. And I'm like, yeah, I said, see, if you'd have left, we'd have never been able to experience this situation. 
And I said, you know, this was something that I said, you wait. I mean, this is going to be something that our team truly benefits from. And uh, that that year we had started uh, six and three in our league season and we finished nine and oh to tie for the league championship. And uh, I think a lot of it was a, tr- uh, a you know, an a- an attribute of R- Rocky apologizing that night to Coach Godfrey. Yeah, I think so too. That 2016 um, kind of, as far as any team I've ever been a part of, is by far the most closely knit group of people I've ever been with. Um, just the everybody cared about everybody and loved each other and wasn't afraid to talk about it and talking about Rocky apologizing. People weren't afraid to apologize in front of each other and people would get buckets out and set the field up and put the field away without complaining. And uh, just, I don't know what it was like on the coaching side, but on the playing side, it was just amazing. Oh, no, it, it was fantastic. My, uh, probably the first 10 or 12 years of me being a head coach, and I've always thought practices were for coaches, games are for players. And so that's one, you know, I tried not to, you know, we, especially in Oregon, we don't have that many contests. So uh, we, you've got a coach during the game, but it's, you know, one of the things that's, it's, it's very hard. You know, I don't know if there's ever any benefit from it, uh, but I always just said, you know, co- practices are for me and my, our teams practiced so incredibly hard with such purpose and effort and conviction during those times that, uh, I mean, there was times that we'd walk off the field after practice and just be amazed as coaches. And, uh, you know, we'd get to games and our, I think our players always felt that games were easier than practices. Yes. Because uh, my, my goal was to have a long practice that required going in and out of concentration levels so that kids could learn how to concentrate. And I, you know, I never really came out and said that to everybody, but that was my goal and our philosophy as a coaching staff. And uh, our teams always got better as the season went on and played hard. And uh, I mean, my, after, since I've retired, people have just, it's one of the things they've talked about was how hard our teams played and how you didn't want to play us late in the season. And and those were incredible uh, compliments to, to have passed your way. Yeah, you've, I mean, at at North Salem, there's been, uh, with any team, there's ebbs and flows of talent that comes in. But I know from a a competitive standpoint, the program in your 20 years was always winning, even on years where, you know, on paper, you'd look at the roster and you'd, well, that team, yeah, they they won't win a lot. But um, I know a ton of it had to do with the way the way practice was run and a little bit of psychology just kind of crept into there, which is one of the things I did want to get to, which um, you've taught psychology for, I mean, a long time. How much of what, (laughs) that's a long time. How much, how, how much of the things you've learned in your career as a psych teacher have crept into what you've done on the field? Well, that's really funny because I think it took me a while for it to dawn on me. And, uh, you know, like talking earlier of I would, you know, make a comment after every skill, you know, after every action and practice and just learning in psychology that, you know, and teaching it in psychology that that's not good to do. And then one day just having the epiphany going, well, man, I do that a lot. I should probably back off. (laughs) And it literally, you know, changed things. Um, 
you know, we had mental toughness coaches and, and, and uh, psychiatrists and stuff come because I've always believed in it, you know, that th- this was a, you know, the mental game approach was something that you always needed to focus on. And if you, if you want to make improvements, improving in the mental game will improve, you know, more than any, any skill level stuff. And uh, we were paying for a, a psychologist to come do some, some mental health teaching. And one of my players said, coach, what, what, why are you paying this guy? We're, we're, you know, you do this all the time with us and it's just as good or better. And I went, Oh, okay. So I kind of backed away from bringing in outside help. I, I, I think one of the tough things as a coach too, I, n- I never wanted to treat, you know, just like talking about players, not treating players the same, but being fair and treating them differently, but treating them the same. And uh, I, you, it's hard to do that with teams. Cause I, you know, sometimes players on a team would say, God, remember how you used to always say that? And on the inside, I would remember it a little bit, but I, I didn't know it was so monumental to that group of players. And because I never used the same mantra with the next team, I didn't want to, I didn't want to try to make every team the same. I wanted to try to take that team and and morph their strengths and use the, the motivational tactics with that group that was going to work, not that it worked before. And that that's a balance because you, you have to have some of that sameness because it works. I mean, why, why not use it again? It'd be, stu- it, you know, it would be uh, silly not to, it'd be stupid. It, you know, why, why would you not use something that's successful? And so doing, doing things differently, but trying to use some things that are the same. And so you're, you're, you're using motivational sayings and different things and you're coming up with something that uh, can work for that group, not just every group you've ever had. And I, I thought one of the greatest compliments we ever, uh, we were playing in the 2004 Legion state championships in the summertime. And uh, we had always been in this one dugout. I don't know what, it, why we hadn't, but uh, we're, I was out having beers with a coach <laughs> at night and uh, he's like, hey, did you see those slogans in the dugout? And I'm like, no. I said, we've been in the first base dugout the whole time. He's like, oh, man. He's like, I'm looking through these slogans, and, and every, I read them, and I think of you, and I think of your program. And I'm like, wow, I got to go look at these slogans. I didn't know what they were. And, and one of the ones, he's like, you know, tradition never graduates. Yeah. He's like, when I read tradition never graduates, I thought that you were your school was the first school I thought of. And this was weird because it was only like the the fifth or sixth year of my coaching, but I had played this coach in the summertime for a long time and with North Salem kids for a long time. And he's like, it doesn't matter. You, every year we think, oh, yeah, he's got a bunch of older kids. The next year they're not going to be as good. And he's like, holy cow, these people we haven't heard of that are half their size and they're still, you know, he's like, You're tr- you, you guys just never graduate. And I thought that was a you know, great compliment. Yeah, I think I think uh, I'll probably get this mixed up, but I think after God, it was probably 2006. I think that was when Larry the Cable Guy was real popular and the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. And so I think our shirt slogan that year with you was "Get Her Done," because uh, I remember my mom had never seen it or heard of it, and we're in the meeting in the library talking about the year, and she said, "Get her done," and she goes, "Oh, that sounds naughty." <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, uh, and then, but I think the next year, which was 2007, so after that 2016 graduated, and there's a, a ton of talent on that team, 
And then I think our slogan on our shirts that year was tradition doesn't graduate or tradition never I, graduates. Yeah, I was worried because I thought people thought, well, it, we're just going to have a down year because we had such an incredible team. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make it, hey, hey, just because people left doesn't mean we can't be good. Uh, one year I used the term dugout and I had gone to a, a coaching clinic, you know, a, a coaching philosophy stuff and just been exposed to people during the off season. And it was like, you know, play the game within a game and don't worry about your opponent. And mm-hmm. so that I also use that with that 06 team. And I, you know, had dugout on the back of some shirts and uh, I had a player years later that said, Hey, well, wh- why did we have dugout on the back of our shirts? <laughs> and I thought it was just awesome. a monumental thing. And it meant a lot to me as a coach, but some care. of our kids didn't even know. Um, so one thing I want to make sure I ask you um, about, and I don't know if I've ever really heard this story even myself, but um, you have ended every email, uh, every probably text conversation and phone call and anything else we've ever talked to another human being um, with loving you. Where'd you get that? What does it mean? Uh, I stole loving you from a morning radio show that brought was syndicated and brought rebroadcast on uh, um, KGON out of Portland and Portland, Oregon had, they used this radio show from six to nine in the morning and uh, KLOS is a radio station in California. I grew up there, so I kind of paid attention to it a little bit just from that and having a familiarity of it. But they uh, a lot of, they were a morning entertainment show, and they would have people call in and do crazy things, and they would put cell phones where animals were eating. They thought it was hilarious to do that. But every time they said goodbye to somebody on the phone, they said, loving you. And they just meant that, hey, you know, thank you for taking time to share your experience with us uh, of, you know, brightening our day. You tried to do something to to entertain on our show. And they, they were just thankful that other people had, you know, reached out and tried to be a, a good human and spread some enjoyment on their show. And so this was I probably uh, became aware of it in 96 or in 95 or 96, and I started saying it to uh, my students in class. And uh, and so I would be in the hallway, and these kids are walking by and saying, hey, Lee, loving you, loving you. And my, the administrators were like, what is going on? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty innocent. It's nothing. And uh, about the same time, Reebok had a commercial, and their, their commercial slogan was, you got the love. And, you know, do you have passion? And it kind of fell into that. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start saying that. And I just started saying it. And uh, I've had people question it over time. I mean, uh, I don't know when I started adding it to an email, but I, I did. I mean, it's been for more than, ten, I don't know, more than 10 years, more than 20 years, probably. Yeah, forever. And uh, I just thought, you know, it, there's enough negativity in the world and we should try to uplift people. And it never really dawned on to me that it was any kind of cultural revolution. The first group of kids I did it with, uh, they graduated and actually some of them went to Willamette, which is a a small D3 university here in Salem. And they had the entire uh, Willamette campus saying, loving you. Everybody was into it. And then they came back and told me. 
Uh, I now have it uh, in 21 languages on my wall. Uh, girl, the first one, the group I first started saying it with, she made a loving you in English and in a heart and put it on. Uh, I'd like anytime a student's done something like that, I've always laminated it and put it up in my classroom. So I, that's always the the loving you that's on the door of my classroom. But I have loving you in 21 languages from uh, Lakota Sioux to Spanish to French, German, uh, you know. Hindu, Urdu, Hmong, I, I mean, just n- numerous languages. And uh, I've just been incredibly uh, feel blessed, you know, feel gifted that kids would take time to make a sign that says it. And so I've always laminated and put it up. I should have written the, I started writing the language that it was because sometimes we didn't even know. And I should have put the name of the student who uh, made the sign and I forgot to do that. I've had students like, you know, oh, come on, you know what, you don't love us. And I'm like, no, there's different loves in the world. I said, I don't let, you know, there's, it's a different type of love for my children than I have for my wife. Uh, it's a different, I don't love you guys like I love my children, but I love you guys. And so I've just always said loving you. And uh, there's some students that won't leave my classroom until they've heard me say it. I, I also started teaching in a, uh, a portable classroom that was outside how, of our school building. Yeah, that's how I yeah. excuse classes. And uh, so some kids will start begging for it. And I'm like, no, you're begging for it. You know, you're expecting it. So, you, you know, we got to stay till the bell rings. But I would say loving you before the bell would ring and give them some lead up time to get back to the building because we were outside the building. And it just has evolved over time. And, uh, I even had a student teacher one time that was a gal who had gone back and gotten her degree. And she says, you're doing a hell of a service for the world. And I thought she was being sarcastic. And I said, what do you mean? She said, do you realize you're, you're teaching young men to say, I love you and that they love something. She said, there, there's a whole generation, you know, there's generations of men that could never say such a thing, even to the people they love the most. And you're teaching kids to say that, that that's very powerful. And I went, well, I'll take that. That, That's a that's a very positive way to to look at it. And I've just have always meant the with the best intentions that, you know, loving you. And so uh, we my last year, I I didn't know it was going to be my last year of coaching, but we we were coming. We were looking for something to put on the back of our shirts. And uh, one of my players who I, I thought uh, I wasn't having a hard time reaching him, but uh, he had played for me for several seasons and I still didn't have as good a relationship as I wanted to. There were times that I felt he was perturbed with me and we just didn't have a, a click kind of feeling. And he's like, hey, Lee, why don't, why don't we put loving you on the back of our shirt? You say it all the time. And he said, you know, let's let's put loving you. And I asked some of the other, a couple other players are like, yeah, let's do that. So it ended up being the last year I coached too, and which was kind of ironic. Um, it's it. I think your the student teacher you had was right. Um, it. I can't go back and like for sure say that. Oh yeah, the words loving you or what did it? But um, I certainly have never, at least for as long as I can remember, had a problem telling telling other people I love them. Um, I think it's uh, and like you said, it's a different kind of love, but I. I, I say it to my players quite a bit individually and, and as a group and, and 
it's true. I think we need more love in the world right now. Um, on um, like in your classroom, there's another saying that is up, and you, you've said it to people before. And it's if you people 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 will people you back. Can you explain yeah. that one too? Uh, that was my first year of teaching in Hermiston, Oregon, and I I don't know what brought the situation up. But uh, I, I said that slogan, if you people people, people will people you back. And uh, I started saying it for a week or so. And someone said, you know, you, that, that sounds like a good poster. You ought to put that on your wall. <laughs> and so I, I had an aide. I still have I, I, I'm moving into a new classroom this year and I have to put that. I still have that original uh, poster that an aide made for me. And I, I will put it up. And my, my whole thing was this. It, it doesn't always happen. But why not try that if you're a good person to another person, they're going to be a good person back to you. And it's a golden rule or whatever. It's just my little take on it. But um, it's been uh, meaningful to a lot of people. Uh, I always give people like there was a girl that came by and she used to pick up the attendance slips by her door. And one day I had really bad breath as a teacher and I never wanted to have bad breath as a teacher and I said, hey, can I, and I asked her for a piece of gum. She was carrying a piece of gum and she, she was so shy. It embarrassed her that I was asking for gum. And, uh, but she gave me a piece of gum and it happened to be around Thanksgiving. So around Christmas time, I got her a, a plenty pack of the same kind of gum, which was Wrigley's Double Mint, which is one of my favorites. It's old school. <laughs> old school. And, uh, she, she was overwhelmed that I, got her this little pack of gum. And uh, she later went on to work at a Blockbuster video store back when we had video stores. And I, I never paid for a video when she was working. And I always tell people, I, I'm not doing it to try to get something or get something free. But I said, you know, a small act of kindness changed this person to where she felt like she should do this, you know, other acts of kindness for me. And I said that, you know, that's you sh- if you people, 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 people you back. And I've had ex-students, you know, come and tell me how meaningful it's been a, like a life type slogan that they've lived by, that they've always kept that close to their heart, which is very powerful for me. I mean, that's a to know that you've impacted someone that way is an incredible, which is funny because my own children are like, OK, give it a break, Dad. I've heard that slogan a million times. But uh, they don't dislike it, but, you know, they've heard it so many times. They're like, yeah, these other people don't, they don't get, they don't get a hundred percent of you. (laughs) Um, It's true. Uh, You, the, the gifts of of small acts of kindness that you've done and big acts of kindness over like my life, for example, have been uh, huge. You've, you obviously coached me and shaped me in in a number of ways that way. But um, then, uh, when I was uh, teaching over in central Oregon, you helped me uh, get a teaching job back at North Salem and coached for you. And then uh, from there kind of gave me the final push to try to become the head coach at South Salem, which worked out Um, over the years. You've, you've been around for some of the bigger events in my life. Um, You came to my wedding. You um, I'm sure you've been to quite a few players weddings over the, the years and, um, when a teammate from 2006 passed away, you called me that day. And I just remember that too. And, um, you've, you've done a lot of good for a lot of people. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, that's one of the reasons I got into coaching. 
uh, I was a juvenile delinquent who had <laughs> some, some traumatic stories. <laughs> yeah, I had tra- some trauma happen early in my life when I was a ten-year-old boy, and uh, it impacted me psychologically for a long time. I, and I never got counseling or help for it, which I think is one of the reasons I've always really enjoyed teaching psychology to students. But uh, I mean, I went out of my way to try to derail my growth and, you know, uh, gosh, dang it, I can't think of the word I want. Um, Oh, my growth and potential. I mean, I just thought I could do things. And uh, I finally got in so much trouble one time, I got kicked out of school for it. And I mean, I was in trouble with the law. I got cited 13, 13 citations from the law. And at that time, when you that happened, you got kicked out of school. And I remember the vice principal calling up and, want, you know, told my mom, hey, you got to come get Chris. He's getting kicked out of school. And she asked what for. And he told her and she's like, I'm not tell, I'm not coming to get him. You tell the little shit to walk home. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's like, you know, Betty, you don't get it. I can't release him. I can't. I have to release him to you. I can't re- release him just to let him, you know, walk home. She's like, well, I don't know what you're going to do because I'm not coming to get him. So he had to he had to drive me home, and I lived 16 miles from school, 10 miles out of town. We had to get through school, get through town, and then 11 miles out of town. And as we drove, Ron Hackbarth drove me home. And uh, as he drove me home, he told me how I could be a, a leader and and one of the more positive kids in school, and I had the potential to be somebody. And it just had never dawned on me. I was I just felt so badly about myself. I was trying to to do myself under. And I mean, it just really showed me. It, I mean, it, he reached out that day and, and made an impact and a difference in my life, which was uh, incredibly powerful. And it was unique because my first year of coaching in Hermiston, I went to uh, McLaughlin Mack High in, in Milton Freewater, which is a small town in Northeast Oregon. And Ron Hackbarth was the principal there. And no I told my team, I told my team, I said, hey, you guys, get warmed up here. I'll be right back. And so they started getting their shoes on and, and getting their stretching going and stuff. And I went in and told him, you know, introduced myself and he's like, Chris Lee, no way. You know? And I said, you know, you, you made a difference that day. And, and he had seen something in me that I didn't see in myself. And I, I wanted to do that to other, for other people. You have, you've been doing it for a long time. Um, in a lot of different ways. And, um, so, uh, just from a, from a personal standpoint, you've met the world to me and it's, it's, it's an honor to have played for you and, and coached for you. And, um, gosh, I remember when I was, I was in college, this would have been 2010 and you let me come back. You know, I came back home for the summer that year. And you let me be the head coach of the of the North Salem summer team. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life where I got to be the head coach and you were my assistant. And it took nothing more than you just calling me and saying, do you want to do it? And it's like, well, sure. Okay. And so just the the trust and faith you put in me over, over my life has been, has been really incredible. You've been, um, you've been a, a father for me for a long time and um, you've done it for a lot of other people and, Love you, man. Well, thanks. I just, uh, yeah, I love you too. Uh, I just thought it was what you needed to, to grow and that uh, you, that was a good group too. I mean, that was, 
don't know. I just thought that's what you needed. And so I've always tried to create a free and open environment uh, as much. I guess I think that's kind of been something my teams have been known for. Some people would laugh at that because I've been a red ass at times too. <laughs> and you, know, you go back to psychology and there'd be times that other assistant coaches are like, man, you need to rip into them. You need to do this and do that. And I'm like, it's, it's got to come from your heart. I mean, the times that I like chewed a team out or really took them to the woodshed kind of thing, you, you know, uh, that's not always good to do and you can't overdo it. But if the team feels that they deserve it, and, and especially with highly skilled kids, if they feel like they deserve it, like they weren't, you know, given their best effort. The worst thing you can tell a highly skilled player is when they do a, a 50% effort and you say, hey, good job. Way to go. That was excellent. Unless you're being sarcastic. Yeah. I mean, if you're being sarcastic and they realize that, that's one thing. But if, if you tell it, but if you tell anybody that a half effort or a partial effort is good enough, pretty soon you're going to get nothing but partial efforts. And so... Uh, it, you know, you can't just go <laughs> chew kids out all the time because, you know, I worked one time or worked with one group of kids. And uh, I had, you know, coaches that wanted me to do that and just something you can't do. Don't know how a few I got quick to quick hitters to, to finish this off. Um, first one, uh, North Salem always had awesome uniforms and the uniform closet was really cool because it always had nice, clean uniforms. I remember even in like, uh, parent meetings talking, you tell parents how to wash the uniforms or families how to wash and make sure they didn't get <laughs> stained. Um, what's the, so we always had good stuff. Um, what's the best fundraiser you ever did? You know, uh, I, it's really hard because especially as our, as our school became more toward uh, free and reduced lunch, it was harder and harder to um, raise money at our school because there's just not as much discretionary income. Yeah. Uh, but probably longevity-wise has been orange sales, which I'm not trying to promote, you know, my assistant coach. My assistant coach <laughs> did the orange sales, and uh, that was part of his business. But uh, we we had done it for a long time and just uh, fell out of, a, out of favor with the company that we started with and switched. My assistant coach said, I think I'm going to do that. And we started, you know, I so I told him I said why don't you do these orange sales? It, it much more you know user friendly than this other person that we were doing it with, and uh, I just probably that because people thought it was such a, a you know a wholesome food and it wasn't candy and different things like that. Yeah. Uh, we we did a, a lottery pick f uh, fundraiser one year you know a bunch of prizes, but it was hard because we hit, we priced the tickets you know. Even back then, we're like, okay, twenty dollars, and the the you could pick a drift boat, a jet ski, or a four wheeler, and that was the top prize. And then we had four more prizes down to a hundred hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, you know, three hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, and man, th those were the hardest tickets to sell. And that was when I first started coaching, and our school was not socioeconomically challenged as much. Um, so fundraising is very difficult. And I, I think the best fundraiser, I mean, you have to have your own program promote it, but it can't just be the same pockets fulfilling the, the fundraiser. You know, it can't just be your own families buying, you know, boxes of oranges and grapefruits. You have to sell them to the community. And so that's when you really need to look for something that the community needs and will support, not just 
your own base because your own families are already doing a lot to, to, you know, support your program. Second one, coach with a family or a young family, what advice would you give them? Uh, make sure you're present when they're, when you're at, at your family, when you're with your family, if you're ever present and you're always where your feet are, you're going to be good. And I was good at that on the baseball field when I was young. I wasn't so good at that at home when I was young and I got better as I got older. Actually the, the times when it was easiest for me and we had the fewer conflicts, my wife and I had quite a few conflicts of uh, coaching and how much time I put into coaching because that's the only way I knew how to do it was to over outwork other people. And so we were always going to play, you know, 50 baseball games in a summer, or, you know, 30, between 35 and 50 games in a, in a, you know, 50 game or 50 day summer season. We were always going to do off season workouts. We were all, all these things that took a tremendous amount of time. And the only time that it was easy to do was when my son was on the team and he was the one needing to go do it. And so it was less of a strife of our family. But I, I, I just have told people, you know, there, there's no, what, whatever you think the afterlife is, there's no baseball heaven. There's no, you know, North for me, North Salem heaven. And uh, people would ask me if I was going to retire after my children graduated and stuff. And I always thought, no, that would be a slap in the face because I missed the time with them when they were uh, a youth make sure that, you know, you're there for when they were youth. I, I wouldn't uh, retire later because now they were gone. I should have retired when, you know, or stepped away from coaching when they were younger. And I didn't mean that people should give up coaching. I've had a couple of coaches at, you know, talk to me about it and then they've stopped coaching. And now, now their children are becoming of age for league age, little league and stuff and they're coaching, which is phenomenal. But they thought it was impactful that I, you know, I felt bad. I, I remember a team, I had a really good team that it was just older than you. It wasn't the 06 group, but we got beat by a team we shouldn't have lost. And we were league champs that year. It didn't even really impact us. But in the back of the bus, they were like celebrating like it was nothing. And my son called me on the way home on the bus and he had pitched in his first little league game that night and I missed it. And my son told me, he's like, Hey, I, I tried to pitch as long as I could I just couldn't pitch any longer because I tried to pitch as long as I could. So, you know, you could show up and see me. And in his mind, he's out there thinking, man, if I keep pitching, my dad will be here pretty soon and I'll be able to see, he'll be able to see me pitch. And that's all he cared about was his dad seeing him pitch. And I missed that night. And so I told people, if you, you've got to decide whether you can miss that. And so if you're going to miss that, you better be present the times that you're there because otherwise you're really cheating your family. And I, I cheated my family to some extent when I was a young coach because I wasn't there. I wasn't present when I was supposed to be at home. I think that's and a tough so thing. It, I think, it's I, hard. You know, our son is – he just he's 13 months old. And, and for me it's kind of, you know, how long do I want to do this? Do I want to do this when he's – it's hard to think of the future and think, you know, do I, do I want to miss his first little league games that I can coach? Do I want to miss, uh, you know, his first day, you know, of, of whatever he wants to do in life uh, because I'm coaching and it's, it's a hard reality to think about. I know it's coming at some point. Well, and, and I, uh, 
when I first got the head job, my daughter was coming of age of uh, playing ASA softball. Mm-hmm. And I, I would coach her and uh, on the weekends and help. And the, the coaches that she played for appreciated me helping out and allowed me to help out. But I coached her and I, there was often times that I would coach, you know, from 730 in the morning on a Saturday morning at a softball tournament and then leave at, at three to get to the field where we were going to play and then coach a, a high school summer team. And there's also times when after I had coached for a while and I had kids come back that were uh, after playing college like you and other co- John Holland and some other guys, uh, Ryan Godfrey, they coached the summer team and I coached my son's summer team. And a few parents were upset when I first started doing it. And I said, I've been coaching other boys all my life. I'm going to coach my son as well. I said, and when I, someone, uh, you know, kind of had some pushback on me when I first started talking about it. And I said, hey, I've coached other kids my whole life. If it was your son, you would coach your son. You wouldn't even think of coaching that someone else's son over your own son. And I said, so, you know, are you going to go watch someone else play instead of watching your own son play? I said, I'm going to be there to coach my own son. And so I was lucky that I had skilled people that could still do the same things that we wanted taught. Yeah. But and then I could go coach. And that's when we had a, a very strong program. Yeah, it helps to have a level of trust in assistant coaches who know yes. what the program's values are and and whatnot. Um, so I guess kind of wrap things up here. If you have anything left you want to say or, or toss out there that we, we maybe didn't get to. Uh, I don't know. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I, I haven't sat down and, and thought or heard or, you know, felt about baseball like this in a while. So I appreciate that. I, I know one of the, one of the things you had on questions was, uh, relationships with parents. Oh yeah. And, uh, I, I always wanted to put my arm around parents. I, I, I don't, I, some friends I had and stuff would just not talk to parents and they just had a closed, you know, I won't talk to you because they didn't want to think that any influence was going on. And, uh, I, I was never really worried about that. Uh, I wanted to put my arm around parents, but keep them at arm's distance at the same time. Yeah. Because there, there were sometimes, uh, that, we did some things socially with parents early in my career and uh, not every time did it come back to bite us, but there's times that it, it came back to bite me because um, they, they thought there would be preferential treatment. And I, I've always said that North Salem baseball is a meritocracy. You, you get by your merit. I don't, uh, I hopefully never played someone just because of who they were, what they did, um, someone might've been on our team, uh, you know, some kid, uh, no one ever bought playing time. They, they, some kids bought a uniform because we had to do that sometimes as a fundraiser and, and to keep a fa- you know, a fa- family in the program and happy, but playing time was earned, you know? And so I just, I always wanted to have parents be close and feel part of the program, but not where. And I have told parents, you just have to have boundaries. It's like, hey, you've gone too far. That's, you know, back off. And uh, and I've all uh, one of my daughter's softball coaches. He never let things fester. He was always like, uh, hey, I'll I'll talk to you right now. 
And he wanted to go talk to a disgruntled parent, like right off to the side. And you, you've got to really read that because that can be very, very uh, volatile if you do that. But, so, you know, sometimes waiting till the next day is better to let calmer heads prevail. But you, you have to definitely have a plan of how you're going to deal with parents. Because if it gets that, you, know, you can't let it just it's fester and manifest and grow. You've got to deal with it. And, you know, I, I told parents, if you email me, you can email me things. But as soon as you email me about playing time or strategy or anything, I said, that's going to be the last email I ever read of yours. Because I'll finish reading the email that you sent me that I find is uh, a problem. But after that, I will never even open up one of your emails. You, you could tell me I won the lottery and I'll never know because I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to read it. And uh, I've had some parents that that's happened with. And I, I wasn't ever, you know, mad about someone questioning, hey, why is my son not playing? I, I was f- totally fine talking about playing time. But when they were working on comparisons, which, you know, it is a comparison to some extent, because when player A plays more, player B playing the same position is going to play less. But I, I just wanted to focus on the strengths and weaknesses of their player, not of the other player. And I, I had no problem telling a kid, hey, here's what you need to do to improve and uh, what you, you know, here's your strengths, here's your weaknesses. But I also asked them to list strengths and weaknesses too. And I got that from the college coach that I played for. You know, I was upset my uh, uh, freshman year of college and I didn't think I was playing enough and I was a pretty good player. We went to the Junior College World Series and and took six in the nation and stuff. And I, you know, thought I should be playing more. And my coach just said, hey, write, write down your three strengths. Write down your three weaknesses. Okay. And he, he did the same thing. We compared lists. He talked about both. Uh, he gave me an action plan of how I could try to increase playing time. And, uh, it, you know, it didn't work right away. I just kept plugging away and I got a little more. But I, I pretty much stayed in the same role because that's where he saw me. And, you know, I played behind an All-American. I mean, that's kind of hard to hard to argue with. You know, establish boundaries with them and, t- and let them know if they cross over a boundary. And if, and if they don't just cross over a boundary, if they jump up and down on the line, then that's when you, that, that's when you say, okay, our contact is done. And people that did that with a – you know, an email or something that that's what I would do. I just, I would never read another email from them. Chris Lee, longtime head coach at North Salem high school retired. Thanks for being on. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Loving you. Hey everybody. Thanks for tuning in. As always, you can find the high school coaches club by going to our website, www.highschoolcoachesclub.com in addition to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at HS Coaches Club. Coaches, trainers, administrators, uh, even players uh, can all provide us with stories that that help us improve ourselves and the lives of our athletes too. So uh, here's the deal, everyone. Um, If you know somebody who'd make for an awesome guest here on the podcast, even if that somebody is you, uh, please email me at highschoolcoachesclub at gmail.com. Coaches, trainers, administrators, players of seriously any sport uh, at the high school level. Uh, If you've got something or you know somebody who's got something to offer up to the rest of us, um, please reach out to me. That's the best way to kind of help this community grow. 
Um, lastly, you can always reach out to me personally, and this is really the fastest way to get a response because I spend probably far too much time there. Um, on Twitter, uh, my handle is at Mr. Max Price. Uh, so, hey, I appreciate you being a part of the High School Coaches Club. Uh, honored that you tuned in and, and spent some of your time here with us. Uh, so thank you for that. And as Coach Lee would say, loving you.